Just a quick content warning. This episode contains brief mentions of child abuse and the sexual abuse of children. Privilege is an idea that many have been reckoning with in recent years. In this social and political moment in which we find ourselves in the modern Western world, plenty of adults have been examining the role of privilege in shaping their identities, their worldviews, and their everyday experiences. It makes sense that kids probably have as well. I know that I never grew up hearing the word privilege or understanding the role of privilege in my young life. But doesn't it make sense to introduce young people in particular to the idea of privilege in an age-appropriate way to help them understand the complex realities that exist in our shared world? How do we introduce our kids to the idea of privilege so that, years or even decades later, they aren't doing the exact same, oftentimes daunting, identity-shaking work of reckoning with the privileges they never knew they had? From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Ursillo. We're joined today by Susan Justice, children's legal advocate, attorney, and co-founder of South Asians Against Childhood Abuse a nonprofit organization that fights childhood abuse in the South Asian community through education, destigmatization, and advocacy projects. Her experience as a legal advocate and a practicing attorney span more than a decade. Susan is also the author of the award-winning children's picture book, Children Who Dance in the Rain, which introduces kids to the ideas of privilege, especially in developed countries like Canada and the U.S., and teaches kids about the disadvantages that many of the world's youth, especially those living in poverty in the global south, struggle with on a daily basis. Children Who Dance in the Rain has already won nine awards and counting, including the 2023 Children's Book of the Year from the Human Relations Indie Book Awards. Susan, congratulations on the recent awards and the accomplishment of your book as a whole, and welcome to The New Story Is. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Susan, let's just start with a broad question. Why did you want to write a children's book specifically about a complex topic like privilege? What's your stake in sharing this story? Well, this project is deeply personal to me. When I was growing up, I was fortunate to have a mother who instilled in me a strong sense of social justice and the importance of helping those who had less. We didn't have much, yet I realized that we had far more privileges than children in less prosperous countries. The disparity hit me when I ultimately went to India. I expected an exciting adventure, but instead I was confronted with a harsh reality faced by many children there. Despite their few possessions, these children displayed an extraordinary spirit of sharing and an unwavering ability to find joy even amidst adversity. And their ability to find happiness was so perplexing to me. However, over time as I matured, I began to understand the true meaning of privilege. These children taught me the profound value of gratitude for even the simplest things. 
Ultimately, after becoming a mother, I read hundreds of children's books, trying to find a book that could help my children realize just how lucky they were to be born in a country like ours, with so many resources available to them. Children Who Dance in the Rain aims to fill this gap by providing young readers with a powerful and meaningful narrative that entertains and enlightens them. Through this book, children can embark on a journey mirroring what I witnessed and the remarkable resilience and unwavering spirit of children that I encountered in India. And it encourages children to reflect on their own blessings, fostering empathy and understanding towards those less fortunate. Yeah. How old were you, Susan, when you first visited India? And tell us a little bit about what that trip was like for you. I wonder if it was a family-related trip if, or, or otherwise, but how old were you when you made that trip? Initially, my first trip was, I believe I was five years old, but at that time, I didn't quite understand um, what I was doing there. I didn't really talk to many right. people because I was so young, but then I went there again when I was about nine, eight or nine years old, and that's when everything changed for me when I met a girl who was exactly like me. We both had the same aspirations, the same intelligence, the same physical abilities, the personality that we both wanted to do so much. But I had I had resources available to me and she didn't. Yeah. Mm. And I could see that although she didn't have anything with uh, anything to provide her with uh, a change of circumstance, uh, the ability to do things in life. She was just content and happy with what she had and perhaps secretly waiting for a hero to come along and help her one day. And there were so many children like her who were content, who were fulfilled in having next to nothing. Yeah, what was it that brought you to India on those those trips when you were such a such a young child? My grandparents they resided there. Initially, uh, my grandfather had died, and uh, we had gone there to uh, meet my grandmother, who was still surviving. Mm. Yeah, so th- I mean, you so you mentioned Susan that you went the first time when you were about five years old. It didn't really hit you because you're five. I think that's a very forgivable, a very <laughs> forgivable thing. Because by the time you said, as you said, you're you're eight or nine, you made some pretty pretty adult observations, some pretty advanced, like for your age, developmentally stark realizations about how you were seeing the world around you. You made a young friend and recognize that you were both so much alike, but that the resources that you had available to you were so different. And this mirrors, uh, quite appropriately, the story that we are exposed to in your book, Children Who Dance with the Rain, where, where um, as, as parents and family members who will pick up your book, I'm sure after hearing this interview, will will learn, is about a young character named Sophie. Can you tell us about who Sophie is as a character and how this character became the avatar for young kids to relate to and relate through in this tale. It sounds like it's it's based on your experiences in some ways, but tell us about Sophie, the character, as we meet her in your children's book. Absolutely. So Sophie is today's child born in the USA, a child that loves to have her iPad, who wants to play games, watch cartoons on her iPod, 
even when she's eating, she wants the internet, she wants to be able to escape from the now by keeping her mind elsewhere and and not able to truly enjoy the moment as children are these days. We're so addicted to screens. We find every excuse we can to get behind the screen and sort of shut off our minds and remain entertained and stagnant. And she's one of those children as well. She doesn't want to eat her vitamin. She doesn't want to eat her food. She doesn't want to take her vitamins. She wants to have junk food if she can. She doesn't appreciate how much she has. And when she's eating her food, she's not mindful that many children in the world are hungry. There is certainly a lack of appreciation. But over time, when she does go to India, when she explores this different world, this journey to understanding privilege and this exploration to the realms of gratitude and a more profound belief in a force greater than her, uh, it changes her world and it changes the trajectory of her life and ultimately what she becomes as an adult and what her aspirations are as an adult and what she does to help people. Yeah. And I wonder about the where the the story departs from real life and 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 where real life uh real life events were inspi- inspired the book for you Susan because obviously you went on to become a legal advocate and an attorney and I know understand that a lot of your legal work and your experiences in in advocating for children have to do with not only helping kids to you know um understand what resources may be available to them um, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you were you have been doing in recent years as an attorney and legal advocate? And and I do wonder, and I'm sure our audience is wondering as well, were those formative experiences for you in visiting India as a young girl? Did those shape your worldview and what you aspired towards in your career as you eventually became an attorney and advocate? Absolutely. It certainly crafted my life into being something that I could, I ultimately knew that I wanted to have the tools to be able to fight for justice, to be able to fight for greater things. And I found that the best way to do that was to become an attorney. And by becoming an attorney, I was able to go to court. I was able to give a voice to children who perhaps didn't have a voice it allows me to enter a courtroom that I otherwise wouldn't be able to enter. So it certainly did shape my life and the trajectory of my life. Our organization, South Asians Against Childhood Abuse, is also a reflection of having that empathy and compassion that was created in me that was um, or uh, that awoke in me when i met these children in india having the ability to understand what they're going through and understand that so many children out there don't even know that they're victims of their circumstances or or violence they sort of just accept their circumstances and it's up to us to actually do something about it because we have the resources to do it and i certainly wanted to be one of those people that could do something absolutely so and and taking it back to your to your book uh, susan uh sophie your character ends up like you like you did in real life ends up going on a family trip to india where she still has family living there such as her grandmother and she experiences 
like you did, kind of a culture shock in witnessing how how so many people were living and how many children live, especially in in under resourced parts of rural India. I wonder if the experiences that you had as a young person of Indian ancestry visiting a place like India mirror other experiences that you've had, maybe with other uh, other people of of Indian ancestry in your community. Is this something uh, of a shared experience in in the community that you grew up in, or would would connect with uh, at different places at different times? I know you spent time in a very diverse place like London during your studies, and also um, when I think you were also working there for a couple of years. Is the experience of kind of going back to India and then having this culture shock moment very similar to for for people that you also grew up with as well? Yes, absolutely. I think so. Um, however, their experience may not be exactly the same, but when they go right. there, everyone sort of voices that it is a wake-up call. When they initially go there, they realize how different their life is in Canada, in America, in England, in Australia, these Western countries. We live a very different lifestyle. And when we go to this third world country and we see in absolutely different world. It's a, an extreme culture shock. And a lot of people are actually writing to me now and telling me that their kids have gone through a similar experience. Now, after reading the book, they feel mm. that they're able to understand the emotions in there and understand the culture shock and are actually glad that there's someone else that feels what they felt when they went to India. So mm. it's nice to see that response that uh, we're now voicing what so many people have ultimately felt like, but perhaps we don't speak about enough. Right. Yeah. It's uh, that. That's really wonderful to hear. It actually reminds me a little bit, um, Susan, about my own experiences. I've I've traveled to northern India twice as a fully grown adult, and you know, I think I think everybody that was with me were you know Westerners from. Northern Europe, the United States and Canada, and all had similar experiences of culture shock without any direct connection to to the place or the people, um, except th through that firsthand experience. But it makes sense that even a lot of young people would have felt these quite big feelings, but maybe not had the language for them um, or felt you know isolated in, in those experiences and not understanding that there was something more or less universal to, to, to the culture shock that they experienced. My next question for you, though, Susan, is like, as you started to allude to that different people's experiences in visiting a, a place like India or any developing nation, we talk about India in particular, this is like one of the most populated countries on the earth. It's a very big and very diverse place. And it's not, you know, uh, top to bottom, the same the same place, the same experience, no matter where you go in terms of resources and and um, and and poverty, especially. I, I wonder for you, though. I know the story is obviously based on your lived experiences and, and a lot of experiences that people have had similar to yours. But were there any risks um, that you and your editorial team felt like you had to navigate to not? like over portray India as a whole or, or parts of rural India in a disrespectful or stereotypical way? What was that process like for you in telling this story, even if it was based on, on true experiences? I think being uh, culturally appropriate was one thing that we really want to be mindful of because um, in India, the clothes that they wear are very... Um, traditional, generally, um, they cover the majority of our body. There, we don't show too much skin in India, so 
we wanted to make sure that we were we were very accurate with our display of clothing and the culture that we were showing in these villages and what children look and dress like there and i think just having that um ha- that che- check making sure that um when someone wore something as um as traditional as a suit it- it's called a suit but um it's actually a traditional punjabi outfit uh, worn in in primarily the northern region of india they wear a sort of scarf with it and if you're not wearing that it seems like hey it might be inappropriate you may be showing too much of your skin there and so just having little things like that was something we wanted to be mindful of and make sure that when it was appropriate we portrayed um nanaki who is the orphan in the book that mm-hmm. Sophie met. We want to make sure that Nanaki at the appropriate times did wear her scarf with her with her suit, which is referred to as a chunni. Mm. Yeah. And so let's let's continue to talk about the art. And I encourage our listeners who are curious, you're going to have to pop over to Amazon. Um, and I will include the show in the show notes links directly so you can see uh, maybe a little sample of the book, you know, as it's as it's depicted on Amazon. But the artwork is absolutely amazing. It's it's beautiful. And I love, Susan, that you mentioned the detail and the cultural awareness, the cross-cultural humility of how you wanted to depict uh, and felt, you know, like a moral obligation, responsibility to depict. Uh, as accurately as as you could in the book, the different characters and the culture in this part of India. And uh, your illustrator is is actually, uh, her name is Lena Bardi. And she, I understand that she's Ukrainian. And she was living in Kiev, Ukraine, uh, and illustrating this book during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I believe she still resides there with her children. And I'm curious about what the relationship was like for you, not only in selecting an artist like Lena, whose work speaks for itself, but how you and your and your creative team went about helping an artist who's not from a region like like in in rural India understand these dynamics. So how much had to be like communicated and conceptualized? <laughs> I'm a I'm a creative nerd, so I love this stuff. But I'm curious <laughs> about how much you had to like kind of coordinate and communicate so that these things would become known and that the book could be as representative of, as possible to the local culture in India. That's a great question. Uh, Lena, she worked really really hard to make sure she included all these aspects in India that we wanted and that we were as detailed as possible from the market scene in there to the outfits to how long the children's hair was in India. There was a lot of communication going back and forth, just making sure that we had everything as accurate as possible possible. We wanted to make sure there was no negative repercussions, just as you had mentioned previously about not having things correctly illustrated in there. We wanted to be quite mindful of what villages actually have in India, whereas what mud colonies would include. And there was a a lot of communication going back and forth. And Leda worked really hard during the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And yes, you're right. She currently resides there as well. It was difficult for her 
for some time at times to illustrate this book because she often had no electricity as well. And sometimes there was a delay in the project because she wasn't able to even send the art to us. We weren't able to go over it. Yeah. She didn't even have email sometimes. And it was amazing that this, this project is a labor of love because she worked really hard to make sure that she still got it done. She finished everything during the times that she did have the internet and she had electricity. She would work through the night even. So it it really is amazing that this project was even finished. Yeah. Wow. Well, um, to Lena, and thank you for, for correcting my pronunciation there, but, but to Lena and, and her, her kids and her family who are, as, as we're recording this and at the end of May, uh, Kyiv, Ukraine is still under heavy bombardment from Russian forces, uh, on residential, you know, residential neighborhoods and in areas as it has been for over a year. So we send, you know, our love and thoughts to her and hope, hope she stays well. The, the artwork is phenomenal and it makes sense. I almost started laughing, Susan, when you mentioned the importance of, you know, cross-cultural humility in incorporating the artwork to be accurate and representative in a, in a, in a respectful way, the the laughter was almost like, oh yeah, because I mean, this is a book about privilege and how privileged could it have been <laughs> yeah. to have missed that detail, right? And yeah. I think that's, I think it's also important to note that, um, you know, for at least for me, I, I always try to identify in, a, in audio format my identity. So as a as a white man, a cisgender and heterosexual man uh, living in the modern United States of America, I oftentimes I'm talking about privilege, but I think it's important to impart that when you're in taking on a conversation or a project about privilege, I think part of the work of it is recognizing and understanding that you might slip up when, and, and make those mistakes, right? And um, Absolutely. Right. So I wonder if you could speak to that because it strikes me that when we talk about privilege and, you know, I started this, this conversation with you asking the, the big question, how do we help educate our kids about privilege? there's no perfect way to go about it, right? Like there are going to be mistakes and misunderstandings and it can be a very challenging process to reckon with your own role uh, in, your, in, in identities of privilege and experiences of privilege. Um, how explicitly has that been a part of the process for you, not only in shaping this book, but in doing the larger work that you that you are doing um, and, and just being a person today? How much is privilege at the forefront of your mind, I guess is the question, um, in the process of, of being as you are and trying to bring these conversations about privilege, especially to young people and to kids today? If I could explain to young children and kids and the society as a whole about what privileges, I would say our world is beautifully diverse with people hailing from all different backgrounds, cultures, and economic statuses. And as a mother, I recognize that Understanding this diversity and the realities it brings is a crucial part of a child's development. That's why I believe it's so important for us to teach children about the concepts, the concepts of privilege and equality. Hmm. Privilege can be an uncomfortable topic for some, but it's vital to discuss, particularly with children. The distribution of resources and opportunities in our society isn't always equitable. Privilege shines a light on this disparity, revealing the marginalized communities and the oppressed individuals amongst us. And we all benefit from different degrees of privilege. And by acknowledging it, this is how we can contribute to dismantling the systematic inequalities. 
in writing Children Who Dance in the Rain, my objective went beyond simply educating children about the world's disparities. I wanted to ignite empathy in them as well. And the aim is to help children grasp privilege and inequality and foster a passion for making a difference. Ultimately, I wanted to instill a sense of responsibility, a disposition to leverage their privilege so that we could bridge a a gap between those who have and those who lack. The intention here was to craft a resource that would entertain and inspire children to take action, to help others, a tool that would gently explain the realities of our world and motivate action. I wanted to help people understand that if we realize that we can help others, that's one thing. Realizing that we're all equal and and capable of making that positive impact is another. The ultimate objective is to inspire children to leverage their privilege, to champion marginalized communities and address these social disparities and assist those in need. This can lead to a more inclusive and supportive society where everyone has the opportunity to reach their full potential. And the responsible use of privilege not only aids others, but also enables individuals to educate themselves, seek new experiences, and broaden our perspective, leading us to increased empathy and understanding compassion. So it's not always a negative thing. We can utilize our privilege for positive things as well. Mm. But I do believe that privilege is a double-edged sword. If it's misused or left unchecked, it can perpetuate these systematic injustices and reinforce the existing power imbalances. So it's another essential lesson that we need to help children grasp. They need to understand that privilege isn't inherently bad, but it can contribute to further inequality when misused. Mm. Yeah, I love the idea that you mentioned, Susan, about awareness of like diversity and cross-cultural experiences and privilege as a a part of a developmental process, that this is something that at different developmental stages and ages can actually really help a, a young person to develop more fully and healthfully, which isn't something that I've really mm. thought about before. It's certainly not something that I've ever read, even in really you know, really recent uh, books on human growth and, and development uh, and the biopsychosocial, you know, um, stages at which humans grow and develop, it strikes me as being really important to incorporate that cross-cultural humility, awareness, and awareness for privilege. You know, like you said, the the positive sides of what can be learned uh, from privilege, as you yourself are a shining example of, and, and the downsides and the detriments that come with uh, unobserved or unrecognized um, privileges itself. And that leads me to my to my next question, Susan. You almost kind of answered this in your previous answer. Um, we're living in a time, especially in parts of the United States, where there's a lot of uh, a lot of news headlines. It gets people riled up on both sides of the political aisle around you know a concentrated effort by a small number of people to ban certain children's books from from schools and school districts um, when they're being dubbed as inappropriate for kids. And if I add my own editorial spin on it, I think a lot of that time it, that language of quote unquote inappropriate just means ideas that break from certain people's very narrow um, outlook on the world. 
And I wonder if in writing a book about privilege like you've written, if you've either already experienced any backlash or, or pseudo controversy in the release of your book so far, or if you are you know, anticipating it in a way that it, it may be something that comes up. Hopefully not. And hopefully not. Um, although it would, it would do wonders for your sales, I think, <laughs> in, <laughs> in response. But is that something that was either on your mind in the writing of this book? Um, or is it something that's on your mind as a creator and creative who, as you just eloquently said, um, really believes that it's important for kids to, to have the, what sounds like the autonomy to understand their role in the world, and that that's an essential part of their growth and development. What comes up for you? Yes, you're absolutely right. I was certainly anticipating it. And I'm still waiting for that backlash to happen because including the word privilege in my book, I it, it was a big deal for my editors and I, we did go over possible alternatives that we could have and alter the story because the word privilege was going to be so triggering for so many people. So we were quite aware of that. And it, there was a sort of fear there that we were going to awaken this, uh, this negativity in people. We were going to trigger them. Um, ultimately, we still ended up keeping the word in our book. And so far, it's been a, a quite a good response. But as time goes on, I certainly do anticipate that there will be some sort of backlash. We will trigger individuals as more and more people um, are reached as we have a wider audience. There will be individuals that will be upset about this. And I understand that when it comes to book banning, we all have a lot of thoughts. As someone who values both freedom of expression and the necessity to protect children from inappropriate contact, I find the debate around book banning to be particularly complex. It's not just about what's suitable for children, but it's also about the principles that underlie in our uh, democratic society. Freedom of expression is fundamental, yet we have a responsibility to safeguard young minds. Striking the right balance is crucial, but defining that line is challenging and it's highly subjective. And then there's questions to be asked. The influence of politics on book banning. Uh, we need to discuss how politics and uh, prevailing societal norms influence the decision to ban certain books. Do political or cultural shifts play a significant role? There's, uh, there's a lot of controversy and complex issues that need to be discussed when deciding to ban books. In today's multicultural society, one of my concerns with book banning is how it might impact a child's understanding and acceptance of diversity. Books often offer an opportunity to explore different cultures, ethnicities, lifestyles, and they foster empathy and understanding. And when we remove certain books from the shelves, we risk limiting the perspectives to which children are exposed. This restriction could potentially contribute to a skewed or incomplete understanding of the world's rich diversity. And as a parent, I worry about the potential negative effects of book banning on a child's creativity and critical thinking skills. Literature serves as a window to different worlds, experiences, and perspectives. And by limiting what children can read, 
we risk confining their imagination and curtailing their ability to think critically and empathetically about diverse experiences. I believe that fostering these skills from a young age is critical to raising well-rounded individuals. So there's just a lot to think about when it comes to that. Yeah. There, there is. And, and you, you put that really eloquently. I thank you for that, Susan, because big takeaway is it's a very complex issue. And I can, you, you know, you said, you know, you can kind of see it both ways, but there's, there is a rich middle ground and it sounds like it's a, it's the nuanced gray area right in between these seeming uh, poles on either side of, of the debate of, you know, uh, never ban anything or, you know, like, protect children in a way that is that is developmentally appropriate and I you know I want to take that that theme back to the work of being a child advocate and and advocating on behalf of in the the wellness and the protection of children as an attorney and through your work your nonprofit organization which was founded in I believe 2022 called South Asians Against Childhood Abuse which you mentioned earlier and I know you co-founded this organization along with two other colleagues of yours so let's talk a little bit about the impetus for creating this organization, South Asians Against Childhood Abuse. So what are some of the issues related to childhood abuse in South Asia and in the South Asian community at large that those of us who aren't familiar with it uh, may not be aware of, generally speaking? Abuse within the South Asian community is a really distressing reality. The chilling statistics is that one in three girls and one in three boys are likely to experience sexual abuse before they turn 18. This is a wake-up call, and yet these alarming figures are often buried under the rug, reinforcing this cycle of silence and denial. What's particularly troubling is the fact that a significant amount of this sexual abuse stems from with in the child's family circle or close friends, mm. family friends. When these courageous children gather the strength, ultimately share their painful experiences with a trusted adult, such as their mother or perhaps a cousin or their father, they're sadly met with dismissive responses. Instead of receiving the help that they need or sparking actions to hold the abusers accountable, they're advised to suppress their stories and not to tell anyone what happened. Sometimes they even get slapped for say, saying something like that. Mm. This not only allows their abusers to go unpunished, but it also exposes the child to further harm. No one is actually protecting them. The echoes of childhood abuse persist long into adulthood, leaving lasting scars to many survivors Many of them just carry this misplaced sense of guilt, thinking that they were at fault for the horrific pain that was inflicted upon them as a child. The harsh reality is that their abusers, they often have to continue being a part of their life. The children are exposed to these individuals and their abusers are, are free from any sort of repercussions. Several people that I know personally in the South Asian community have been trapped in the shadows of such traumatic experiences. Despite the passage of years, they're still tangled in this difficult web, forced to face their abusers in everyday life. Sometimes they have to hug these individuals, see them at weddings, dance with them on the dance floor. To address this, 
we first have to shatter the silence. Starting open discussions about abuse in the South Asian community is an important step. This is precisely what South Asians Against Childhood Abuse does. We advocate for those children who haven't had a voice. We are fighting for the South Asian community to acknowledge what is happening in our community, to create awareness and promote open dialogue about the harsh realities of childhood sexual abuse in the South Asian community. Our goal is to break the silence and the patterns that persist when it comes to abuse. Many people are oblivious to this issue simply because it's not given the attention it needs. And the South Asian community doesn't want to speak about this. They don't want to acknowledge it. And it simply continues over generations. This is a pattern that we want to break. Yeah. And you mentioned, Susan, that... The breaking the silence and the stigma around the silence is a big part of the work that you're doing so far. I understand that you and your colleagues, some of the work that you're doing in South Asians Against Childhood Abuse is having these uh, online forums for conversation and publishing uh, anonymized stories from individuals from uh, the South Asian community at large to give voice to their experiences. What has your what has your experience been in being a catalyst for these stories? Um, how has it like impacted you so far in the work that you've been doing since 2022? And what has the response been, uh, generally speaking, from the community as you're championing, you know, th- these very difficult stories, uh, but but making great efforts to destigmatize what is unfortunately and tragically far too common of an experience for for so many young people in the broader community? What's that been like for you? So we were working on this prior to 2022, but ultimately we decided that we needed an organization that would advocate for these survivors of childhood abuse with unyielding awareness. Just, it's been amazing just how how prevalent this is in our society. There are so many individuals that are affected by this. Uh, On one occasion, I was having a meeting with my colleagues and I was at a, a, at a packaging depot, um, just sending out uh, my book. I think actually I was um, sending my book to you that day. Uh And a couple of people there had actually heard me speaking on the phone when I was having this meeting, two adult individuals, approached me after I got off the phone and they informed me that they had been sexually abused, a boy and a girl. Um, They were adults now. One was 28, one was 30. And they hadn't spoken about this to anyone aside from their parents and their parents, both of their parents told them not to tell anyone. And that was it. And now they still see these individuals who had abused them, who were family members. They still see them on occasions. It's astonishing to see just how many people are affected by this, and yet no one speaks about it. And just knowing that these individuals felt so much, I think, um, support knowing that we are beginning this fight against abuse this fight against silence was really assuring to them because they knew that although the, there's so many unfortunate circumstances that happen every day all around the world, 
we are now at least starting to acknowledge it. We are speaking about it. And that's the first step, I think, to shattering that stigma, to to shattering that guilt and shame that these victims carry. Yeah. What do you see as next for you, Susan, and, and your work, whether we're speaking specifically about South Asians Against Childhood Abuse or maybe you're starting to even think about future book projects. I know we're talking about your first award-winning book. I don't know if there's any seeds of ideas about future book projects, um, but what do you see as next for you? What are you tracking or what's kind of, um, what's inspiring you as you start to think ahead about the work that you're feeling called to do, whether as a legal advocate for children, an attorney, or now an award-winning author? Um, I don't know about uh, future books yet. That's uh, <laughs> too soon. Too soon. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one. But I think ultimately, um, I, I, I have two goals in life, and that's one is advocating for underprivileged children around the world, and the other is creating awareness about childhood sexual abuse and stopping it from continuing. Trying to prevent that cycle from going around and just shattering those patrons from continuing, uh, holding people accountable, holding abusers accountable, allowing victims to share their story. Those I would say are my, are my ultimate goals. And I think I'm just going to keep fighting for them for as long as possible. Well, on behalf of our listening audience, thank you for that. Thank you for your work and advocacy, and for for the good fight that you're putting um, that you're that you're putting out there. So, uh, final question, Susan. Um, looking ahead, I wonder if I could ask you a question that I tend to ask at the end of our interviews to, to many guests. I ask about what new story you're envisioning for the world or for the people whom you are are striving to help. So, we talked a lot today about privilege and, and furthering the dialogue on privilege, but you're also mentioning just there about uh, championing the rights and the wellness and the protection of people who have suffered um, from abuse as children. So, I wonder what comes up for you. What do you hope the new story may become and, and what inspires you to uh, to continue to champion that new story. Um, can I give you an example of uh, privilege? Sometimes these abstract concepts like privilege and inequality often just become more tangible with concrete examples. Yeah. And if I could provide everyone with an example to think about, it would be this. Let's consider a scenario where you're in a room with another child and you're both given uh, cookies. You're given nine cookies. The other ch child is given one cookie, even though you both equally love cookies and deserve to enjoy them. That distribution is unequal. In this context, with your surplus of cookies, you symbolize an individual given more opportunities and resources. The child with one cookie represents those with fewer opportunities and resources due to circumstances beyond their control. This is where the lessons of social justice, empathy, and equity come into play. The pattern persists if we fail to acknowledge that unequal distribution of cookies or recognize that the other child has less. It's easy to enjoy your cookies without questioning why you received them, as we often do, but this is precisely when we need to instill the importance of empathy and equality in our children. Recognizing the disparity is a first step. The next 
is understanding your sense of justice and fairness is tied to the other child's. The equitable solution is for both of you to have an equal number of cookies. Both of you should have five each. This isn't about charity or about merely sharing. It's about questioning the system that allowed an unequal distribution in the first place. It's about speaking up for the child who received less, about leveraging your privilege to advocate for a more equitable system. The simple example underscores the importance of acknowledging privilege, emphasizing, empathizing with those who have less, and using one's ability to advocate for equality. It's a lesson of interconnectedness, teaching children that we're all a part of the same societal fabric. Your well-being, your sense of justice is intrinsically linked with the well-being of others. And much like the child with cookies, those blessed with privilege carry the responsibility of acknowledging it and using it for positive change. They can use their voice, influence, and resources to advocate for those less fortunate. This is what I hope to give other people. I want to encourage them to help create a more equitable world. And that would be my goal from everyone walking away listening to this. Let's try to create that. Let's acknowledge what's happened. Let's try to create that change. Susan Justice, she's the author of Children Who Dance in the Rain, which is available now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Target, among other retailers. You can find out more about Susan and her book at the Compassion Press Project. That's at CompassionProject.press. Susan, thank you so much for all of your work, uh, for your advocacy, for the good fight that you're fighting, and for joining us on The New Story Is. Best of luck moving forward, and thanks again. Thank you so much, Dave. And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. If you're enjoying the work we're doing on this show, these intellectual, thought-provoking conversations with talented guests and storytellers from all walks of life, please, please leave us a rating and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify. That helps to build the public credential of this show, which is only a little over a year old, but we have amazing interviews coming your way. More interviews soon. Thank you for listening to The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Until next time, take care, stay well, and story on.